0: I wanted to read from Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. It's a letter from Paul to a church that he and his fellow co-workers themselves planted, and a church that has continued to be involved in his ministry and support to him. And So he says, beginning in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, and we remember that the you there is the plural. It represents the entire church, of course, the individuals who make it up, but he's he's talking to the entire congregation. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then the section that we'll be focusing on most this morning. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others, the rest, from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, Paul says, I rejoice. Father, we pray again that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher through the word that he inspired, that you will be honored, and that Christ will be proclaimed. In his name, amen. This morning, as we come to this passage and as we break into verse 12, where the Apostle Paul is talking about his situation and circumstances we're going to be finding about about a person, a real-life person, Paul, who has made the advance of the gospel really and truly the central focus of his life. And we'll see what an all-encompassing impact it has because he's done that. And so he says after that warm affectionate greeting and kind of reminder of their history with one another, He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's giving them kind of a ministry and life update, but what he's referring to is his arrest, his trial, and his imprisonment. It's recorded in the book of Acts. He's arrested because of Jewish opposition and other opposition, and the leaders, the officials on behalf of the Roman Empire they don't really know what to make of this. And what we need to remember is that the Jewish religion in the Roman Empire was a licit, that is permitted, legal religion. Not every religion was. Not every spirituality was. But the Jewish religion was. And so it could be practiced sort of undisturbed if you were Jewish, if you were part of a synagogue. Well we kind of forget that as the church advanced, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, that as the church was advancing to the outsiders, this just sounded like another wing of Judaism. They used the Old Testament scripture. Paul would regularly go to synagogues. He would talk about Messiah. Everybody knows that's the big thing for the Jewish religion. And so at its early stages, it's like, okay, in the eyes of Rome, here's another kind of Judaism, so that's okay too. But as it went forward, the Jewish leaders themselves were repudiating, to say the least, Christianity, this new way, and specifically this new Jesus. And it was happening in locale after locale in very disturbing the peace kind of ways. So now, Rome is faced with, what do we do with this way of Jesus from Nazareth? And what is developing is, and, you know, there's Festus and Felix and Agrippa and Bernice, and they all kind of punt one another, and they're not sure what the verdict's going to be, and apparently Paul's not sure. And so in a strategic kind of wise as serpents kind of way, maybe not thinking that these lower court proceedings are going to go very well, and concern most of all not for his personal well-being, but truly, as we'll see for the advance of the gospel, he does what every Roman citizen, no matter where they actually lived, were allowed to do. He appeals to Caesar. He appeals to the Supreme Court. And it says there in the book of Acts, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you'll go. So that's what he's talking about. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really, that is actually, and the idea is contrary to what you would have thought, what you would have expected, because you would have thought, oh, this trial, this hassle, this imprisonment now, this going to Rome, that's sidelighting the advance of the gospel." That's short-circuiting the ministry that Paul could otherwise have been having. And so there are times when, not just in our individual lives or the lives of our family, but in the life of a congregation, we can't really figure out what Providence is up to. And it just it's really frankly, this isn't good. This isn't going to go well," is how it feels. But Paul is to the point now where he says, "I want you to know." that trial imprisonment even though it's all undeserved and unjust has actually served to advance the gospel it's another instance of God's surprising providence and churches as I've said face them too it could hardly have seemed good for Paul for the Christians and churches in a circle of influence for him to be seemingly sidelined by all of this. But he says somehow, and even though he doesn't spell out providence, it's clearly what's in the back of his mind, the way it's actually playing out, the gospel is being advanced. And he gives some instances of it. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And that reference to the imperial guard is sort of a pretty interesting study to think about what is apparently going on. And scholars differ a little bit, was he imprisoned here or there, but most seem to think that this is an imprisonment in Rome, in Caesar's court, in the, you know, kind of the jurisdiction of Caesar and the palace. But Acts tell us that he's actually able to live in his own rented quarters guarded by Caesar and Caesar's guards. In other words apparently they would take turns. There weren't, there weren't electronic tethers back then so you got a human tether. You were attached, you were chained so there are chains involved to a guard 24 hours a day and so they would work in shifts obviously and so you know maybe four shifts so six hours a day the Apostle Paul had someone From Caesar's army, Caesar's guard, chained to him. Can you imagine, honestly, with sanctified imagination, what it would be like to be manacled to the Apostle Paul for hours at a time? Acts tells us he's still welcoming people in, he's still explaining the gospel, he's still explaining the implications of the gospel. He's still counseling, I'm sure, other church leaders. He prays without ceasing. That doesn't mean all the time, but it means he regularly keeps praying. Well, you know, he knows you're supposed to go into the closet and do it, but you can't when you're chained, and so the guards would hear the praying and the prayers. He writes epistles while he's in this imprisonment, usually often dictating them. Can you imagine what that's like listening to this man dictate the letter to the Colossians and the extraordinary? And after a while, they're like, wait a minute. This is no seditious murderer. This is no political insurrectionist. This guy's here because of this Jesus. And this guy's here specifically, apparently because he insisted that Jesus is Messiah, the ultimate true Lord of everybody everywhere. And they would have heard in prayer and conversation, and I'm sure Paul lovingly tried to connect with them individually. And so what he says is, it's now the case that through the entire imperial guard, And to all the rest, everyone else that's sort of in the circle of Caesar's household, they now know, because this goes on for months and months and months. In some ways, court proceedings then aren't much different than court proceedings now. They all know now that my imprisonment, my chains, are due to Christ. So that's one way that the purposes, the interests of the gospel, contrary to expectation, have actually been advanced. In fact, when you think about it, Christianity is this global religion, go into all the world and spread the gospel. Well, that's said from tiny little Israel on the edge of the empire. And yeah, Paul has launched out and he's trying to spread the gospel, But if you care about the interest of the gospel, you want the gospel, the message about Jesus as the Lord who saves, to get to the heart of the empire. You want it to get to Rome. And more specifically, you want the emperor to hear about it too, to hear this message. Christianity isn't merely just some kind of privatized individual religion. It is an announcement. It's a summons. It's an ultimatum. It's an invitation to all the world and everybody in it, to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, how is the early church in little Jerusalem going to get to Rome so that Caesar hears the message? This is how. This is how it's now happening. And so, contrary to expectation, God's providence is working things out and now throughout Caesar's entire household and guard, they're hearing about Jesus, the Christ. There's a second impact, a second way that the gospel is being advanced. Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, by means of my imprisonment, they become confident in the Lord, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And here again, you have to kind of piece together what other aspects of the New Testament tell us. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul, very near the end of his life now, he's not expecting deliverance this time. He's like, the time of my departure has come. But he looks back and he reflects and he says, at my first defense, he means this trial before Caesar's court, at my first defense, no one stood with me. The Roman church, the Roman Christians, and the pastors, the leaders of that church, when Paul is hauled into court for trial, just think it prudent. We're just going to kind of retreat. We're just going to kind of back off. And nobody else showed up except Paul so poignantly says, except the Lord, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. But he means not one Roman church Christian or Roman church pastor. The first time I really reflected on this passage was when my mentor, Dr. James Greer, preached this years and years ago when he was uh, an interim pastor in a little town, Jamestown, Ohio. And he was putting these things together that I'd never thought of before. You know, I'd read Acts, I'd read Philippians, and I'd read 2 Timothy 4, but I had never put things together this way. But he says, just imagine it. Paul, this whole thing, this whole imprisonment, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not just. But Paul didn't go into this, why me, God, kind of attitude or mentality. So he didn't get angry with God. And even more surprisingly, from what we'll see, he doesn't get angry with fellow Christians because apparently no one stood with him, no one came to his defense, and this was a congregation, when you think about it, that got the letter to Romans from him. This beautiful, powerful treatise and explanation and exhortation on the gospel Paul had sent that wonderful, wonderful letter to this Roman church. But now, when he could have used their help, their support, their corrobor- whatever, corroboration, no one stood with me. Everyone deserted me. And Dr. Greer, who was so wise in his exegesis, but also wise in sort of exegeting the human heart, said, if this had happened to me, and a church had treated me that way, I know what Romans 2 would have sounded like, but not Paul, for reasons that we'll see. Apparently, as things are developing, word is kind of leaking out that it looks like there's going to be a favorable verdict. That is, Christianity is going to join the list of licit, permitted legal religions in the empire. That, apparently, is what... Oh, oh, okay, This looks like things are going to turn... And so then they become more confident again to start preaching, speaking the word without fear because Paul is in the vanguard of the gospel's defense. And so he says they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then this extraordinary kind of aside and acknowledgement. Some indeed preach Christ motivated by envy and rivalry. The rest from goodwill, the latter, the goodwill people, they do it out of love. They know in God's providence by now why I'm here, that I'm put here for the defense, the legal defense of the gospel. And so they're doing it out of love that's why it motivates them to preach Christ. But Paul, he's just candid. He knows the human heart because he knows his own heart. And he says, some, while I'm kind of languishing or seemingly languish, some are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish." Ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me, to stir up trouble for me in the midst of my imprisonment. That is a reality check. It's extraordinary until you think real world and real life. We have to know that when it comes to ministry, all kinds of motivations enter in. We have to know it because we read our Bible and we we read the accounts of ministries, but we have to know it too. You, You know your own heart. There are all kinds of motivations that enter in when it comes to ministry. And it ought to be this love for Christ and this love for people and a desire to make this glorious saving message, this life helping, life-changing message, and this glorious person, known to as many as we possibly can, motivate out of love and goodwill, but other things enter in. And it is so, so easy. Believe me, I know, as a pastor, as someone whose job is to be religious, His job is to be spiritual and to come across as spiritual and to seem spiritual, that other motivations can most definitely enter in. And it seems like the reality was, some of them were like, you know, Paul, we don't agree with Paul in everything, to be honest. In the main, we do. But anyway, he's in prison now, you know what? That just kind of gives me a wider scope, a wider platform for my own ministry and we don't mind if he knows that. It's sad, It's I'm just saying it because all of us have to guard our hearts. I know there are so many reasons that people do religion and spirituality and ministry and again and again and again it comes back to I want people not to make much of him That'd be great. I hope that happens. But you can tell by what agitates you. You can tell by what excites you as you do ministry what you really care about. And for so many of us, so much of the time, I want people to make much of me. And, you know, that's why I do ministry. That's why I do religion. And it's not something that you just see in your life one time and you kind of address and then you're done with it. It's something that can come back again and again and again. But the Apostle Paul has gotten to the place where, again, he knows that this is going on. He knows that some are preaching from right motive. But he also, he's just a realist. He knows, however he's come to know it, that some are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. They're not sincere. In fact, they've got it in for me. And again, If this had been how I was being treated in the midst of ministry and in the midst of life, bad enough that I was getting the divine providence that's got me unjustly in jail and prison, but then no one else to show up at court at trial, people I've poured myself into ministry to like Paul had through Romans, the letter, then some are actually trying to take advantage of my situation. I do know what Romans 2 would sound like. And I would be a seething, simmering, pious on the outside, agitated on the inside mess. But not Paul. What does he say? Verse 18. What then? So what? All I care about is that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Why? Because Paul really and truly has made the advance of the gospel, not his own advance, the central focus of his life. And so Paul says, I know what's going on, but I tell you what, Christ, whom we're about to see, Christ, he says, my whole life is Christ. For me, living is Christ. And now I've longed for the gospel's advance to Rome. Now it's taking place in this extraordinary way, and I know about that group and why they're doing what they're doing, but they're proclaiming the Savior I really, truly love. And they're doing the work that I most passionately care about. So I'm rejoicing. And I'll continue to rejoice, he'll say as he goes on. I said in the first service that even though I'm not Presbyterian by every conviction, and we know the differences between a Presbyterian and Baptist, I am Presbyterian by temperament. That is to say, and I mean it, you know, just you know, it's not a slam. If it is, I'm slam, I'm analytical. I'm, you know, careful to think things through, to try to discern, to figure out, in my religion, get the doctrine right and ward off the wrong doctrine, and all of that is great and wonderfully important. But real Christianity is also, and because of that done right, is experiential, which is to say. I'm not so good at rejoicing. Rejoicing is an emotion word. It's not just thinking things through and getting things just right. It is a powerfully felt emotion. In fact, I'm the type, when it talks about rejoicing and joy in the Holy Spirit, someone says, well, what is it? I go into it, well, let me tell you what it's not. You know, that's sort of, <laughs> and I've got to ward off all kinds of things. And it's not just a feeling, and it's not based on circumstances, and that's all well and good, but it sure can't stop there. It's got to get to the place not only where I accurately describe it, but where I really, truly feel it. Joy is this sense of elation. And gladness, we know what it is in other contexts, in other circumstances, you know when you're experiencing it. You know when you're rejoicing. It's this deep, profound gladness and gratitude and wonder all blended in and you're just fired up. And for Paul, he wasn't just churning out duty, certainly not just churning out ministry duty in order to advance or in order to appear a successor, anything like that he's motivated by love for his savior and he's motivated by love for the gospel itself and so in real circumstances where the emotional response may well have been expected to be anger or or bitterness or envy or anything like that instead he is really truly he's not just piously given a testimony he is really truly i rejoice And I'm saying the only way that can be true is because Paul cares most deeply about the advance of the gospel. And if that's going forward, he's very, very glad. Is the advance of the gospel the central focus of your life? Is the advance of the gospel the central focus of your church's life, your congregational life, and your aspirations and expectations and what you care most about when it comes to what happens to and through your congregation. The reason that the advance of the gospel was the central focus of Paul's life in the sense of his activity and his work is because knowing Christ was the central focus of his very being I don't know any other way to say it he goes on to say yes and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ this will all turn out for my deliverance it's apparently a quote a little quote an allusion to Job and the experience of Job you talk about another time where you can't figure out what providence is doing but Job still expects it's going to turn out for my deliverance God's going to show up. He's going to save in this circumstance too. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed or put to shame, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored, literally magnified, be made much of in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he says... And this phrase, you know, it shows up on posters and bumper stickers for Christians. It can be and sound like just a greeting card slogan. But for Paul, this rather extraordinary person, it really is where he's at. He says, for me, living Again, that just sounds, oh yeah, everybody, you know, Kush supposed to say that. But he really truly means it. And think of it. Think of this real life person, this Saul of Tarsus. He's intelligent. He was on a track for success and influence and prestige in the life. A very respectable, a very significant, weighty kind of person. And passionately religious and devoted. Uh, He was a devout man. And it was sincere theological conviction that led him to think, this Jesus of Nazareth is bogus. This claim to be Messiah from the Nazarene. It was religious zeal that set him so opposed to that. He knew that his Bible said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Well, Jesus ended up hanged on a tree. It looked like he was one who was smitten by God, stricken and afflicted by Him. And then the Damascus Road happened. And not in just a vision. I mean, he actually encounters the resurrected Jesus. And that just changed everything truly. It really just, in that moment, in a way, and then he had to figure out all the implications. But he's like, I couldn't have been more wrong about Jesus. And he ends up in that counter, Lord, Master, Kyrios, what should I do? How do you want me to live? Everything just gets totally revolutionized. And that is only the beginning of Paul's lifelong aspiration now. Later in the letter, he be I want to know Christ. but Paul, you already know him. You're a theologian. You're a missionary. You're a pastor. You already know Christ. He means I want to know him better and better and better. He thought of Jesus one way. He probably encountered Jesus at some point in Jesus' actually earthly ministry. They were contemporaries. They certainly overlapped, And Paul had to be at Jerusalem at key times and other places in Israel. Eventually, though, the Apostle Paul, one time Saul of Tarsus, rabbi, who thought about Jesus in such derisive ways, eventually about that very same Jesus who he met face to face on the Damascus Road and started to get to know, eventually he writes this way about him, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image, this monotheistic Jew is writing. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him, and even more remarkably in a way, for him. That's why everything's here. It's for him. And he is before all things, and in him all all things hold together, and he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might have first place. He might be preeminent. And Paul, he's just like, Now that I realize who Jesus is, I'm captivated by him. And he realizes, if you think about who Jesus is, first place is the only right rank to give him. It makes no sense. You're like, well, I give him, you know, a lot of people give him fifth or sixth. Most weeks he gets second or third from me. That makes no sense. Not given who he is. Not given everything's made from him, through him, and for him. That he's the head of the cosmos and he's the head of the ecclesia and everything's headed toward the time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul has come to profoundly believe that about Jesus of Nazareth. And he says that in everything he might have first place, or as he says so beautifully and poignantly here, For me now, in light of this, living is Christ dying is gain. Why? Because dying means more Christ for him, unobstructed engagement and interaction with Christ. Do you see how powerful this is? In life and ministry, if living is about pleasing these people and being well-approved by these people and that, boy, that's distracting. Boy, that's exhausting. Boy, that's confusing. But if you really, truly come to the place where, you know what, I'm not just pretending because I'm a loser and I can't succeed at other stuff, so I'll pretend that all that matters is pleasing Christ. Given who He is, that's all that's ever mattered truly anyway. And Paul has just profoundly realized it. And so... He just looks, and when the Bible says this, it doesn't mean Christ only in your life. You've got other relationships, God-given relationships. You've got other callings and obligations. You've got a world that you inhabit, and you've got to rightly engage with all of that. It doesn't mean Christ only, but I tell you it most definitely means Christ supremely, and Christ centrally. If you really realize who Jesus Christ is and the absolute privilege of being engaged with Him, you'll know that it only makes sense for every other relationship to be conditioned and signified by my relationship, your relationship to Christ. Paul says we don't know people after the flesh any longer, just what they are, just in this worldly sense. Now it's a new creation, Christ-centered perspective on everything. For me, this intelligent, sophisticated, impressive man, not some slogan, not some motto, he says it and he really means it. For me, to live is Christ. One commentator put it this way, to say living as Christ is to say that for him, life means Christ and life is summed up in Christ. Life is filled up with, occupied with Christ in the sense that everything Paul does, trusts, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on, is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to existence. Paul views his life as totally determined and controlled by his own love for and commitment to Christ. Overpowered by Christ on the Damascus Road, and overwhelmed by His majesty and love and goodness and forgiveness, Paul can see no reason for being except to be, for Christ. If that sounds excessive or extreme to us, we really haven't recognized who he is and what he is honestly, truly. Once a person does, Paul's sentiment makes entire sense and it's the only thing that makes sense. As you decide about your next senior pastor and in many ways Pastor Kevin and Pastor Jason came and asked me to preach this Sunday. I thought the last thing I'm going to try to do is like seven steps to finding your next pastor. But I want to give you one. It comes from an insightful essay from Paul Tripp that I read just this week. This is what matters most, hands down when it comes to the characteristics that you'll look for in your ministry. And what I'm going to describe, no person does completely or perfectly, or you won't have another pastor and all the rest of us will have to resign. But it truly, truly matters that this is the thing that matters most for any minister. A pastor's ministry is never just shaped by his experience, knowledge and skill it is also always shaped by the true condition of his heart in fact if his heart is not in the right place knowledge and skill can make him dangerous pastors often struggle to find living humble needy celebratory worshipful meditative communion with christ it's as if jesus has left the building but the ministry turns on. There is all kinds of ministry knowledge and skill, but it seems divorced from a living communion with a living and ever-present Christ. All this activity, knowledge, and skill seem to be fueled by something else. Ministry becomes shockingly impersonal. Then it's about theological content, exegetical rightness, ecclesiastical commitments, and institutional advancement. It's about preparing the next sermon, getting the next meeting agenda straight, and fulfilling the requisite leadership openings. It's about budgets and strategic plans and ministry partnerships. None of these, says Tripp, is wrong in itself. Many of them are essential, but they must never be ends in themselves. They must never be the engine that propels the vehicle. They must all express something deeper, in the pastor's heart, the pastor, and it's true of all of us, must be enthralled by, in awe of, and in love with his Redeemer. If you realize who he is and what he is, there's plenty of material to be the catalyst for that, plenty of reason so that everything he thinks, desires, chooses, decides, says, and does is propelled by this love for Christ and the security of rest in the love of Christ. His heart needs to be tenderized day after day by his communion with Christ so that he becomes a loving, patient, forgiving, encouraging, and giving servant leader. His meditation on Christ, His presence, His promises, and His provisions must not be overwhelmed by His meditations on how to make ministry work. And so importantly, and I know this for sure from personal experience, including how much I didn't experience right, only love for Christ can defend the heart of the pastor against all other loves that have the potential to kidnap and commandeer his ministry. Only worship of Christ has the power to protect him from all the seductive idols of ministry that will whisper in his ear. And only the glory of the risen Christ will guard him against the self-glory that tempts all and destroys the ministry of so many a destruction that sometimes you can see from the outside? Sometimes you can't, but it's been hollowed out a long time ago. Paul, great example, real life, flesh and blood human being, living as Christ. University Reformed Church has a sacred reputation in history. You really do. I don't know how much you are aware of it, But as a sister church, that for sure is true. You are known for continuing to be devoted to the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ while you were led by Pastor Stark, while you were led by Pastor DeYoung. And I know the commitment to the gospel's advance, that that commitment continues that you still care about the advance, the progress of the gospel in East Lansing, Michigan, that you also care about its advance in Charlotte, North Carolina, and in Detroit, and in Kalamazoo. You want to see Christ continue to be magnified at MSU, but you're glad to know also that he'll be continued to be magnified at RTS. How God guides and superintends the gospel's advance surely will surprise us sometimes. There are unexpected and, frankly, at least initially unwelcome providences. We're experiencing it south as well. A dear friend and, and partner in the ministry is moving in God's providence to become a senior pastor somewhere else. And Humanly, not thrilled about that. But remember, who would have thought that Paul's imprisonment would have actually turned out to advance the gospel, not to slow it down. So those matters we must surely leave to him while we devote ourselves to doing all that we can wherever his providence takes us to know and love Christ ourselves and to make Him known. And for the believer and for the congregation that has made the advance of the gospel the central focus of life, that will always mean whatever happens. What then? There will be reason to rejoice because Christ is being preached. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the longer sometimes we've been around Christianity and the things of Christ, the greater the possibility that we'll have drifted away from that first love where what Paul says makes perfect sense. And life and ministry even, ministry even, becomes about something else and something less. So Lord, I thank you for this inspired record of an imperfect flesh and blood but spirit-filled, gospel-transformed man who came to the place and stayed there where he could really say, for me, to live is Christ. May you who begun a good work in this congregation be trusted to bring it to completion until Christ's day. In his name we pray.